Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Shiloh, we are finally, is that the right word, at the war chapters here. We've this whole book of Alma has kind of been building up to this and it's a tragic end, right? To this book of Alma. I mean, it's a good thing that it's not the end of the book of Mormon, but sort of this, this book of Alma kind of ties up with this really horrific war here. And it's, it's kind of a tragic end to this whole narrative that we've had of, of Alma, the younger preaching the word and, and seeking to turn people to Christ. So we get into these these word chapters here. It's quite, what do we got, 20 plus chapters that talk almost exclusively about war and tactics and and so forth. Uh, no other point in the Book of Mormon is there this extensive of a discussion of these. And it really begs the question here. I mean, there's often a discussion of why did Mormon put these in here? And man, you know, I think we could do an entire podcast just on that. You know, why did Mormon put these in here? And I know you've had thoughts about that. I've read some stuff by your wife that was really interesting. She had thoughts on that. I've had some different thoughts on this, but yeah, I mean, what, why does Mormon have this in here? What's, what's the purpose of this? And what are we, what do we need to understand first coming to these war chapters that helps us really get out of them? What not just Mormon intended, but the Lord intends us to have. I think it's a really great question, and we've talked about it before, but just how Alma is laid out, the first half really is devoted to missionary work. It's You have the first half with Alma going to the people of Nephi, basically a story of like, listen, let's try the virtue of the Word of God. So he goes to the Nephites, and then we have basically the story of Ammonihah. He carries on for chapter after chapter after chapter in Ammonihah, leading up to the flames and the fires and the women and the children being burned, and... That's really funny because that narrative doesn't hold true here. In fact, we're going to read here that you're supposed to defend your families even under bloodshed. So if that's a universal principle, how do we understand Ammonihah, right? Because they know they have power to save the women and the children, but why don't they? And then we end up having the the narrative of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and, and of how the Lamanites are then converted. So we have two different situations, two different people. Now we have the war chapters. And again, yeah, why are the war chapters here? And and as you said, I think there's a lot of discussion into trying to frame what war is and why these war chapters are here. But the Lord has a standard for war that we don't really ever talk about. It is a really big glaring hole in a lot of our theology and a lot of the things we talk about. You know, we, we say we're a gospel of peace. And yet, as a culture, we have literally supported every major war that has ever existed. You know, we, we talk on one side of our mouth and, mouth and say we promote peace and we want peace, but we're going to go out and we're going to kill for it. And we see that here with, with Moroni. And so Moroni has really become a central, powerful, loved figure in the Book of Mormon 
because he really does exemplify a lot of our cultural American virtues in how we come about our to our identity. And so he we really do put him on a pedestal as far as his extolling it and come to find out Mormon does too. You know, we're going to mm-hmm. read, in, <laughs> read in about how Mormon is just kind of in love with Moroni and we and even so he names his son after him, right? So Apparently, yeah. Yeah, apparently. So we have we have a lot of stuff to talk about. And as you and I were talking, this is really daunting. These 10 chapters that we have segmented to talk about the war chapters in one in one sitting. I, I you and I were like, "Man, I might this is happen. such a it might not have <laughs> such a big chunk." But in getting started, one of the things that uh that has come to mind and that I I have found is extremely valuable in talking about the war chapters actually starts a lot earlier, and it comes out of Mosiah chapter 7. And it's the last chapter in Mosiah chapter 7, and I have found this extremely, extremely helpful as I have talked and seen through the scriptures how to identify the Lord's hand in deliverance. And then let me read that for you, Rojas. It says, this is uh, Mosiah chapter 7, verse 33. But if ye will turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart and put your trust in him, and serve him with all diligence of mind. If you do this, he will, according to his own will and pleasure, deliver you out of bondage. So there's three things here that the Lord says. We've got basically three conditions. He says, if, the, if you turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart, you put your trust in him, and serve him with all diligence and mind, then if you will do this according to his will and pleasure, he will deliver you out of bondage. So these three things, turn to the Lord, full purpose of heart, trust in him. And so we start to see this unfold into the narrative, and, and we can start pulling this out as we're reading into Mormon, how they do one, and sometimes they do another, but then there's usually one that's always left out. And so the Lord prospers them in degrees. And so we do, we see Mormon pulling out all the times that the people are prospered. If you, if they are living and keeping the commandments, they are prospered. If they're doing one or two of these, Never to like full absolute deliverance where you have like the exodus where they walked through without any military struggle or they came in through like, like all the times here in Mosiah when Ammon and his people are saved without any kind of resistance and they don't have to fight back. The Lord does deliver them. You know, maybe it's because of some drunken strategy. <laughs> you get the, the <laughs> you get the guards all drunken up and then you can walk out, right? But for whatever strategy and through whatever means that the Lord ends up delivering people. So I find that extremely valuable, those, uh, those three criteria, and I think we're going to find a lot of places in the scriptures to, to implement those, those conditions. Well, you know, and, and the actual normative standard is, is put forth in Doctrine and Covenants section 98. And we did a whole, when we did LDS Liberty, we did a whole podcast just on this section here. And so if people are interested in you know, some discussion of that, you know, they could go check out that podcast. But essentially, DNC 98, you know, this is all direct revelation given to Joseph Smith on basically the Lord's standard regarding self-defense, fighting, war, etc. And there is a lot of context that leads up to this verse, but the real discussion of it starts in Doctrine and Covenants section 98, verse 16. And he says here, therefore, Renounce war and proclaim peace, and seek diligently to turn the hearts of the children of, to their fathers, and the hearts of the fathers to the children. I hate to do the whole definition thing, but if you look up the definition of the word renounce, it means to forsake or to give up as an option. And 
That is really interesting. For us to really renounce war, we have to be in a different frame of mind and perspective than what our culture generally tells us about what the purpose of war is and its needs, its necessity, I should say. Here the Lord tells the people to renounce war, and not just the negative, right? And proclaim peace. I love that. You know, it's not enough to just give up war. You have to actually proclaim peace. This is reminiscent of Abinadi when he comes to Noah and says, you know, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who publish peace. So later in this section of section 98, uh, the Lord outlines pretty specifically and in detail the steps that you would go through when someone offends you or attacks you. To not delve too much into it, essentially you have to really abide by quite a high standard before you're even let's say, before the Lord says you're even justified, and that's an important distinction here, justified in retaliating or defending yourself or or using, let's say, using violence in a counter sense. Okay, so we get over to verse 29, and this is after your enemy has attacked you three times, he comes against you a fourth time, and it says, And then if he shall come upon you or your children or your children's children unto the third and fourth generation, I have delivered thine enemy into thine hands. And then if thou wilt spare him, thou shalt be rewarded for thy righteousness and also thy children and thy children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Nevertheless, thine enemy is in thine hands. And if thou rewardest him according to his works, thou art justified. Okay, there's the justified. And this is in contrast to the verse before that says, Thou shalt be rewarded for thy righteousness. So here, kind of a synonym of sanctification, righteousness, and the Lord makes the distinction between justice or justified and righteousness or sanctification. It says, If he has sought thy life and thy life is endangered by him, thine enemy is in thine hands and thou art justified. Verse 32, Behold, this is the law I gave unto my servant Nephi, and thy fathers, Joseph, and Jacob, and Isaac, and Abraham, and all mine ancient prophets and apostles. And again, this is the law that I gave unto mine ancients, that they should not go out unto battle against any nation, kindred, tongue, or people, save I the Lord commanded them. All right, so this is the principled standard that the Lord gives for war. Now, this kind of helps frame this discussion of these war chapters. How do the Nephites as a people hold up to this standard? As you were reading that, Ben, there were in verse 16, I'm looking down at the cross-reference, and it says peacemaker. There to renounce war and to proclaim peace. It says peacemaker. And this, you know, the Beatitude language is coming into me real heavy with that. But it also references 4814. And so when you look up 4814, we're going we're gonna to read this again in the next episode, but we're going to talk about this because it says, Now the Nephites were taught to defend themselves against their enemies, even unto the shedding of blood, if it were necessary. Yea, and they were also taught never to give an offense, never raise a sword, except it were against an enemy, except it were to preserve their lives. So this is the Nephite way of thinking. And this is how the Nephites were taught. This is the Nephite narrative. And we, and we know that 
the anti-Nephi-Lehi's were of a completely different narrative. Because we remember back in Alma 26, when we had Ammon and he was basically glorifying in the success that they had had and his brother's like, you're boasting. And then Ammon comes down and he says, he says, yeah, we can witness of the, of the Lamanites their sincerity because of their love towards their brethren and also towards us. For behold, they had rather sacrifice their own lives than even take the life of their enemy. And they have buried their weapons of war deep in the earth because of their love towards their brethren. See, the, counter -nar the, the standard narrative here is that they only buried their weapons of war because of a covenant, because of their many murders that they'd created before. And while that is in part, because it says that pretty explicitly, and while that is at in part, they buried their weapons of war as a standard to forgive them of their past sins as a motivation because they love their brethren so much. It's pretty explicit in chapter 24. We see it very explicitly here in Alma 26. And now I say unto you, has there been so great love in all the land? Behold, I say unto you, nay, there has not even among the Nephites. For behold, they would take up arms against their brethren, and they would not suffer themselves to be slain. But behold, how many of these have laid down their lives? We know that they have gone to their God because of their love and of their hatred to sin. That's powerful. Because they realize that in their conversion, in their converted state, that they have reached a level of conversion where they have completely lost the fear of death. They don't need to revile against evil anymore. They're willing to die. The men, the women, the children. Can you imagine being parents who have small children who are now taking this covenant and they realize that in taking this covenant, they're not going to physically defend their children? You know, we don't think about that very often when we think about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. The irresponsibility, you know, the American narrative of how we view ourselves and, our, you know, the protectorates of the parents against their children. If you have parents who have done something wrong in the past and now they are making a vow to never do anything to protect their children, they don't know at the time that they're going to go into the Nephite land. And you and I talked, Ben, about them going into the Nephite. They didn't even care to go there. They were willing to die in the Lamanite land. So it's not that they were looking for someone to take care of them or to protect them. And we found that out pretty explicit evidence there through Ammon and Lamoni's conversation. But they had reached such a level of conversion that Ammon is looking at him saying, even the Nephites don't understand this. And they don't. Because the last half of the Book of Mormon, all of these war chapters are the Nephite narrative. There is a very real juxtaposition going on here between the narratives of love and conversion and all of these, you know, the Nephite way of thinking. So this renounce war and proclaim peace, yeah, the Nephites have a different way of looking at that than the anti-Nephi-Lehi's did. And so we're going to really find out what exactly the Nephites, why the Nephites thought this. We're going to find out the righteous state because come to find out, righteous and wicked, they're that pride cycle that we always talk about. We always talk about it in very definitive terms as though, yeah, they were very righteous and they were very wicked. But sometimes we don't recognize that that happens in the exact same year. Like, it's, <laughs> it's really funny that, <laughs> that this does. It happens as like they were righteous in the spring and they were wicked in the fall. They were, and, and I'm thinking, if you are that bipolar with your righteousness and wickedness, like, really, how deep is your conversion? I really think in a lot of ways, we, the Book of Mormon, Mormon in particular, might be overselling the point. As a historian, he's going through this, 
And I don't know his training as a historian, and I don't know his motivation, but when you have people who, in the exact same self-same year, and he even notices that it happens, he catches himself doing this. He's like, this is really weird. And we'll get, we're going to get to that. But if they're really bouncing around in their wickedness and their righteousness so quickly, I really have to question how deep is the Nephite conversion to God? Now, we're going to find out they had four years of what's called peace. Basically, Mormon is defining peace as the lack of external conflict. And so we're going to find out that they have a lack of external conflict for four years. Well, that's nice. And we're going to find that they were very happy during this period because Moroni was here to protect them. Very reminiscent of ancient Israel and King David. But in this way, we're going to find out that the Nephites, their righteousness, you know, it has something to be said for it. There were a lot of other things going on that caused them to go into war. And that's one of the things that we find out from, from Alma. In fact, Hugh Nibley, Ben, you had a couple, you had a quote from Hugh Nibley, and I don't know if uh, we want to bring it in right now or talk about it, but in, uh, in Alma chapter four, verse two, we know the Nephites had a tradition about war. And this was how the Nephites viewed war. But in Alma chapter four, it says that the people were afflicted greatly for the loss of the brand. They were in a war. And I'm sorry, it's Alma chapter four, verse three. And so great were their afflictions that every soul had caused to mourn for the Nephites believed that it was the judgments of God sent upon them because of their wickedness and their abominations. Therefore, they were awakened to remembrance of their duty. I know you're going to read that again when you bring in the Hunibli quote, but this is the Nephite tradition. They believe that war is a consequence and a judgment of God sent upon them because of their wickedness and their abominations to awaken them to a remembrance of their duty. That's how the Nephites view war. It's not because they're righteous and that the Nephites are righteous and the Lamanites are wicked, and so they're serving God, and so the Lamanites are just bad and coming against them, and that they stand in their righteousness and God preserves them. That's not what's going on here, and that's not what the Book of Mormon is teaching us. It's so much more complicated than that. Because in Mormon chapter 4, we have it explained out for us that Mormon recognizes after all of the wars that he's been through, he says, but behold, the judgments of God will overtake the wicked. And it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished. For it is the wicked that stir up the hearts of the children of men unto bloodshed. Now, it's not just that there are the wicked Lamanites on the side that are stirring them up to bloodshed, although we will see that. But we will also see that even though the Nephites specifically and explicitly don't delight in bloodshed, we also know that they're willing to engage in it. And we also see that the Nephites are supposedly guilty that they know they're sending their brethren, the Lamanites, to what they believe is hell unprepared, but they're not willing to self-sacrifice in order to have their, their brethren be saved. It's better for me to be preserved in my righteous Christianity and my brother go to hell, then for me to self-sacrifice like the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, that perhaps, and this gets into the doctrine of perhaps, that, perhaps, that, have, right. that perhaps, just perhaps, not that they will, but just perhaps, the whole basis of the atonement of Christ. Because he sacrificed for everybody, not just the people who will take him up on it, but for everybody, that just perhaps. So on this doctrine of perhaps that we've talked about quite a bit, the Nephites don't engage in it. Yes, they're sad that they have to go out. Yes, they wouldn't go out unless the Lamanites were coming against him. But explicitly, they are more than happy to go out and to kill the other person and send him to hell than for him to be able to be blotted out. Because they, we're going to find out here in Alma 48 that that's just not something they're willing to bear. They're not willing to bear their own death. They're not willing to bear the death of their wives or their children because of their cause of Christianity. 
about how they view Christianity. They don't want to, they don't want to be blotted out. They believe that if they keep the commandments, then God is going to preserve them. And preserving them for them means physically. It means that they're not going to die. They're not going to be taken off the land physically. Now, this really does show a very limited view about how they view eternity, because as the anti-Nephi-Lehi's understood, and their conversion ran so deep, we're going to find out that they, did, they had no fear of death for themselves, for their wives, for their children, for any of them. Because they knew who God was, they knew their state in eternity, they knew their place in heaven, and they were righteous and they were willing to self-sacrifice because of their love of their brethren. They couldn't stand to go out and to kill their brethren in sin. Yeah, it's a completely different narrative. It's a completely different foundation for belief. We have very contrasting narratives here. You know, this whole first part of the Book of Mormon, like we were talking about, the that Alma the Younger and... and the discussion of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. You know, this is really, to get specific on this, an example, we have in Alma chapter 43 here, it says, And now the design of the Nephites was to support their lands and their houses and their wives and their children, that they might preserve them from the hands of their enemies, and also that they might preserve their rights and their privileges, yea, and also their liberty, that they might worship God according to their desires. So this is Mormon's commentary on the attitude of the Nephites here. And it's interesting because it's really framed in this whole sort of, I don't know if you want to call it self-righteousness, but this whole, we're righteous and so we're not going to let you attack us because we deserve to live because we're righteous, right? And we deserve to enjoy our rights because we're righteous and you're wicked and so you don't necessarily deserve that. And this is interesting in the context what Alma chapter 35 says. So this is right when this war is about to start because he's just gone to the Zoramites and he's come back and he sees this war starting. And so this would be sort of Alma's view in contrast to the verse that I just read. So Alma chapter 35, verse 15, and now Alma being grieved for the iniquity of his people, yea, for the wars and the bloodsheds and the contentions which were among them, and having been to declare the word, or sent to declare the word among all the people in every city, and seeing that the hearts of the people began to wax hard, and that they began to be offended because of the strictness of the word, his heart was exceedingly sorrowful. And this is the state of the people that Alma sees. And then we get to this verse here in chapter 43, where it talks about how they felt that since they were the Nephites, and they had their religion, and that they were the righteous, right? You know, Hugh Nibley has some really good commentary on on this point and sort of this whole situation here. And true to form, you know, it's it's really hard to pick out the right thing to pull from Hugh Nibley <laughs> because every single word he says is so good that it's like, man, if I start here, that means I'm leaving out everything he said before. And if I end here, then I'm leaving everything else out after. So really like to get context you know, you should look up this this talk, which um, it's called Scriptural Perspectives on How to Survive the Calamities of the Last Days. It's a mouthful, but he's an academic, so he gets to have long titles. Um, in any case, here's, here's a section from it. This is what Nibley says about, about this. He says, the shining hero of the Book of Mormon is Moroni. Quote, if all men had been and were and ever would be like an Moroni, behold, the very powers of hell would have been shaken forever. 
Yea, the devil would never have power over the hearts of the children of men. Nibley says, You do not expel evil from the hearts of the children of men by shooting them, or blowing them up, or torturing them. The Inquisition operated on that theory. Nor can the powers of hell be shaken by heavy artillery or nuclear warheads. The devil does not care who is fighting or why, as long as there is fighting. The devil is the father of contention, and he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, to stir up the hearts of men with anger one against another, but this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, I will declare unto you my doctrine, that the Father commandeth all men everywhere to repent and believe in me. There is no possibility of confrontation here between good and bad. This is best shown in Alma's duel with Amlici. The Amlicites are described as coming on in all the hideous and hellish trappings of one or more, more colorful rock bands, glorying in the fiendish horror of their appearance. Alma, on the other hand, is the, quote, man of God, who meets the monster Amlici, quote, with the sword face to face. And of course he wins. Yet the Nephites consider that debacle to be the judgments of God sent upon them because of their wickedness and their abominations. Therefore, they were awakened to a remembrance of their duty. The moral is that whenever there is a battle, both sides are guilty. Now, that's kind of a tough pill to swallow, right? It kind of reminds me right back to what Alma thinks here. He says, uh, they began to be offended because of the strictness of the word. Their hearts began to wax hard. If, if we ever look at this, you know, and look at these wars and battles, and, and we don't come to terms with and realize that when this, when there's a war like this, that it's evil versus evil or bad versus bad, it's not the good guys versus the bad guys, then if we're going to stand and insist that it's good versus bad, you know, and my side is the good guys and your side is the bad guys, then it sounds like Arm Alma would call us hard-hearted. We, we have some things to self-examine, you know, maybe not just of ourselves, but our whole culture, if we're going to insist on that narrative. You know, the Book of Mormon has its own, what they call just war theory. You know, just war theory right. is, a, is a philosophical concept really started by Augustine. And before Augustine had happened, the early Christians, after Jesus Christ, for several hundred years, posited from the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes that no Christian could serve in the military, and that no Christian could be able to lift an arm to be able to defend himself and could be able to... Uh, you had to accept the evil and to give good. And so they wouldn't serve in the military, they wouldn't serve in government, because government was, like Max Weber said, the father of sociology... That government is basically the socially acceptable institutional monopoly of violence and coercion. So early Christians wouldn't even fight in that. But Augustine is really what gave Christians the philosophical underpinning that first allowed them to really start to be able to serve in the military. And so once Constantine came along trying to unify Rome, and he, and he really gave place for Christians to fight in the military, that's where the Christian and the, and the cross really became weaponized after Jesus Christ came. And so that's where just war theory ended up coming into Western culture and became entwined with Christianity and about how the right times when it's appropriate to fight and the right times to use violence 
And so we have what are called use and bellow and use at bellum principles, like, you know, to go, what are the justified things of going into war? And what are the justified principles once you're fighting in war? You know, and so we have that. And the Book of Mormon has its own just war theory that people have taken. And partly of that is it's just self-defense that you don't, the, the Nephites were taught, like we just quoted in, in chapter 48, the Nephites were taught never to lift a, uh, an arm of offense and only to ever lift an arm of offense if you were defending your life or your liberty or your your family. And so it's really fascinating to me, Ben, just how many times Mormon begins to drop the concept of liberty here. Liberty is everywhere through these pages. I mean, yeah. I can only imagine the early Americans reading this for the first time and being like, man, this is the best Republican book ever. <laughs> it's defending liberty everywhere. And like Captain Moroni is like George Washington. And he's just like, he's like the guy who's preserving liberty everywhere. And when you and I talked about Ammonihah, as I've been reading through all these war chapters, or all the war chapters, I can't help but think of Ammonihah when Alma leaves Ammonihah and the Lord tells him to go back because they do study at this time to destroy the liberty which God has given. That that was the whole reason that the angel who appeared to Alma and told him to go back, that was the whole premise. Everything that happened in Ammonihah and everything that Ammon talked about and, and Amulek ended up talking about had everything to do with liberty. And it led them to the fires of Ammonihah. And at the fires of Ammonihah, they knew they had the power to save their families. They knew they could stretch forth their arms, and they didn't. And this has been one of the strongest things that I've wrestled with as far as how to be able to balance this command that they were taught to defend their families, because it says that the Lord says that they should defend their families even into bloodshed. Now, the funny thing is, is I can't find anywhere in the scriptures where the Lord has ever said that. All I can find is the reference that the Lord had said that. Mm-hmm. So either we're missing a big part of what the Lord has actually said or the revelation where he has said it. All we're told, though, is the Lord has said that. So, you know, taking that as face value and, and saying, okay, well, no, God never said that. So, you know, let's take that as face value. Why is God at one point saying that it's a moral principle to defend our families even into bloodshed? And yet we have the anti-Nephi-Lehi's who have never loved more. And we have Alma and Amulek letting their women and children die in the fires when they have the power of God to save them. What gives? Where's the where's the juxtaposition? And what's what's fascinating here is that for me the answer comes in that living a true Christ-like life by truly taking upon yourself the name of Christ, you follow Christ to the cross for the same reasons he did. That it is a is a testament and a witness, and it is a type of martyrdom. And we see that in the in the Antonifi Lehi's in their witness, their testimony, and their martyrdom. And we see that in the women and the children of Ammonihah, in their witness, their testimony, and their martyrdom. We've brought those three words up multiple times in talking about them. They are willing to self-sacrifice. That martyrdom is a self-sacrificial sacrifice. But what we're not seeing here is we're not seeing, we're, in fact, we're seeing the Nephites explicitly saying they will not do this. In fact, here in, uh, in verse 48, it says, nevertheless, the Nephites could not suffer to lay down their lives that their wives and their children should be massacred by the barbarous cruelty of those who were once their brethren and had descended from the church and had left them and had gone to destroy them by becoming the Lamanites. And they could not bear that their brethren should rejoice over the blood of the Nephites so long as there were any who should keep the commandments of God. For the promise of the Lord was that if they should keep the commandments, they should prosper in the land. 
you know, that kind of language tells me they could not suffer. Well, Christ suffered. They could not bear. Well, Christ bared. These, this is language that is very counterintuitive to what Christ actually did versus how the Nephite tradition is teaching and instructing the people. And yet we see the people of the people of Nephi still yet having a moment where they're, they are actually calling upon God. There are several moments when they do call upon God and God seems to come along and to deliver them. But what gives, Ben? <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it's... We're pulling a lot of things here. So the listeners, if this is the first time that people are coming to this kind of narrative, I mean, these are things I've wrestled with with the scriptures of being able to say, like, 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 what is actually going on here? Because this is not Beatitude, Sermon on the Mount kind of talk. This is, this is not to have Jesus the Christ and the Sermon on the Mount and not just in Matthew and some hill on the other side of the world, but when he comes to the Nephites, he's giving the exact same message. He doesn't come along and he doesn't say, you know what, be poor in spirit, mourn, be meek, be filled, be merciful, be pure in heart, and be a peacemaker. And when you're persecuted, rejoice, because so persecuted they the prophets. And by the way, go kill the enemies that come upon you. No, it's love your enemies and do good to them hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Like literally the people who were actively and intentionally coming against you Pray for them. Go out to meet them. Be proactive in their lives. And, you know, and it, the, what you quoted from Christ was, a, was powerful and amazing too. And so for me, we're, what I'm seeing here is this theme that has been absolutely beautiful in being able to interpret Scripture. Because for the longest time, I labored under this idea that, the script, that all Scripture was basically a celestial standard exemplifying just the perfect prescriptive law of God. And that all we needed to do, and that, that nothing was in conflict with each other, everything was in perfect harmony, and that it was just one high standard and we just all, all had to rise and meet it. And as I've come a long, long way from that, I've realized that scripture actually is the story of men and women in their ups and their downs, in their complicated lives, on the highest peaks and the lowest valleys of discipleship. And how God deals with his children where they are at. And that so long as no matter where they are at, so long as they call upon him, and so long as they try to, to come into God, he will, he will save them and he will preserve them and he will do everything he can for them. Because in that coming forward unto them, there is this, there's this path that's opened up kind of on their own end that they come into a relationship with God. And so it's not this prescriptive concept, but it's more descriptive. We're just simply getting a window into who and what the Nephites were. And we are getting to see that, you know, they are going through ups and downs in their discipleship. We know that by the wicked, the wicked are destroyed. We know it's the traditions among them that, that if they are led into war, it's because of their own wickedness. We know that they don't have the type of conversion that the anti-Nephi-Lehi's do. And Ammon explicitly tells us so. We know a lot of things about the Nephites, but the thing is, is what's happened is our, our American culture and the way that we've interpreted these scriptures, we take, I don't want to, you know, fanboy is kind of a negative term. I don't mean it as a negative term. I just, nobody else in scripture, Mormon doesn't fawn over anybody else in scripture right. the way he does Moroni. But we don't get anybody else 
fawning over anyone, you know, Mormon fawning over anyone else the way he does Moroni. So we have these narratives that unless we're really careful with how we're reading the text, I think we can really use our socio-American narratives and overlay them onto the text really easy to then self-justify our own warlike natures. You know, and it, it does beg the question of where is Mormon at in his life when he's doing this abridgment right here of this record? It might seem obvious that Mormon just started at the beginning of the records and just went through them and abridged them. But we're talking about records with an S plural. He didn't just take one set of plates and abridge that set of plates. He had tons of different ones and he had to search through all of them and decide what was important, what he was going to include and what he wasn't going to include. You know, just a few minutes that I spent looking over this This would be an interesting topic of study that I have not spent enough time with, but we have alluded to this before, where where is Mormon at in his life experience when he is abridging this right here, as opposed to Alma 5 through 35, right? What's the different Mormon? You know, which Mormon is this? And as I was looking a little bit at the the biography we have of Mormon in the actual Book of Mormon in the Book of Mormon, <laughs> um, Amaron tells him to go get the plates when he's 24. He starts leading the armies of the Nephites when he's 15. So a good part of his young life, he is basically just fighting more. Now, he is very blessed to have received great knowledge and is a disciple of Christ and seeks to follow that. But so much of his life, he's just At this point, he's just enveloped in war all leading up to this point. I can imagine him at some point, you know, being this military commander, going back and searching the records to see if there's something that can help him, right? As a commander, what can I find in the records of this people that might help me as a military commander? Maybe strategies or logistics or ways to go about fighting this war that might help me. And I imagine him coming across this Moroni and being so impressed with all of the fortifications he did and all that he did with the people that he really was struck with this, right? And felt like this really sung to him. This was so important to Mormon that he had to include it um, just as like a a personal thing. So I'd be interested to kind of explore that and see... What point does it seem to fit into to Mormon's life that he puts this in here? You know, you were talking about this verse we have in Alma chapter 43, verse 47. It says, And again the Lord has said that ye shall defend your families even unto bloodshed. Okay, so there's this quote here. And I think this is a classic case of a very simple quote of scripture a word of the Lord that can be interpreted in very different ways based on your own cultural baggage and perspective and view of who God is that you bring to this quote itself. It's kind of reminiscent of render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. You're going to talk to five different people and get five different views of what that actually means, even though supposedly Christ was being very clear. And so you take this scripture, you shall defend your families even unto bloodshed. Some months ago, I was pondering on this and I I wrote down some of my thoughts because I felt like I 
I think I organized them pretty well. I'm just going to read what I wrote here. This scripture is often brought up as a counterpoint to the path of testimony and nonviolence. Here are a couple thoughts I've had on it. First of all, like you were saying, Shiloh, nowhere can I find that the Lord actually said this anywhere in the scriptures other than this statement, which appears to be commentary by Mormon. So here we have Mormon that's narrating this state of the Nephites, and he gets to this point and he says, this is the premise that they were operating under, and I'm going to quote it. This is the scripture. That one sentence is the only thing that's the actual word of the Lord, the revelation, right? And everything else is the commentary and context that's all attached to it, right? So here it says, it also appears that he is citing it as one of the main reasons that the Nephites thought it expedient to take up arms against the Lamanites. Thus, it serves to reason that this statement comes from some revelation available to the Nephites before the time of Captain Moroni, or at least this is what Mormon thought about it at the time he was writing this. It is possible that this is not an actual revelation from the Lord, but merely a cultural religious axiom that was had among the people akin to, I never said it would be easy, I only said it would be worth it. That was one of the thoughts that I had on this, but that was just sort of musings on the origin of this. Where did this come from? But what I really think is is a more important way to view this is the second thought that I had on it. And that is that if we take this statement at face value, quote, defend your families even unto bloodshed, it's not necessarily a call to violence. Mormon seems to interpret it that way, but if it is indeed a revelation, it is just as likely, and in my opinion more likely, given the host of other scriptural support and context, that this statement is not a commandment from the Lord for his people to shed blood. It is instead a declaration that in standing as a witness of him in defense of their families, it may be required for their own blood to be shed. I think there is ample evidence to support this interpretation, more so than the conventional one. Consider what Alma tells his people at the Waters of Mormon, quote, to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things, and in all places that ye may be in, even until death that ye may be redeemed of God, and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. The words, until death, don't simply mean stay faithful until you get old and die, but also, even if it means your death, because after all, you are redeemed of God, and partake in the resurrection. So what is death? Consider how Gideon dies at the hand of Nehor, testifying of Christ. Consider Abinadi. Consider the Anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Consider the repentant people of Ammonihah. The list can go on, but to me the evidence that testimony and defense unto bloodshed is more about your own blood than the blood of your enemies is overwhelming. This is because, most importantly, we have the example of Christ himself. When he comes to the people, he has them drink his blood, which was shed for them. This is in contrast to the common practice of the wicked to swear to drink the blood of their enemies. Christ's blood was shed, in one sense, in our defense. The defense of his family, that is, all who take upon themselves his name. 
this view of this simple statement in Scripture, when taken in the context of a testimony of Christ, becomes at once a powerful witness of who He is and who we are.